American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Before we start, welcome to another episode. Of American Timelines, I'm Amy, and that's Joe. And we are history for jerks. We're jerks, and we provide historical things for jerks. And you're all jerks that are listening, probably. I mean, because we're all a jerk. I mean, everybody's a jerk, so don't take it personally. But we are history for jerks. It's kind of a play on history for dummies. All right, moving on. Anyway, but so we have this cool new sponsor called Magic Mind. Uh, You've heard me talk about how great it is for me. It's this little delicious shot uh, that helps me focus and drink less caffeine, right? So that's not the whole point of it. There's, they're doing this whole new thing, uh, a, a challenge. Magic Mind is doing, they have challenged us to do a challenge for you all, and a lot of you guys are better at social media than us, so I think this is a challenge for our listeners. It's a 14-day challenge, and uh, it is about being your best self for 14 days and it's for good and for the rainforest. Yes. So Magic Mind, the people at Magic Mind are like, hey, we know we have this awesome product. This is delicious, and it does well for people. But we also want to get the word out also by donating to the Amazon Rainforest. And so the way it's going to work, uh, uh, we're doing the challenge, and our listeners are going to do the challenge, and there's a contest, and you can uh, – win this contest and get magic mind super cheap. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, here's how it is going to work. The hashtag is hashtag 14 days of magic. Okay. That's Mm -hmm. the challenge. And everyone's going to become their best self for 14 days and share your journey with us, uh, at magicmind.co slash 14 days of magic. You can get any magic mind pack with our discount code ATL 14. Okay. ATL 14 is the code you use that and you get 20% off. And, you are also going to make content, 14 days of making content. You know, do it every day, but throughout the 14 days, and just show what you're doing as a better person. You're taking this magic mind. It's making you focus. It's making you feel better. What are you doing? How are you being a better person? I personally have decided, I haven't told you this, mm-hmm. but I'm going to spend 14 days creating rather than consuming. So a lot of times I get home and I'm tired. And I'm just like, ah, I'm just gonna sit in front of a tube, yes, and watch. I know that feeling. Watch episodes of Night Court, mm-hmm. or catch up on wrestling from the '90s that I missed, right? When I was living life, and I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I all these hours I'm spending, right? Just watching football or watching something else or watching old things, and then I've I've wasted my whole night when yeah. I can create. So I feel better when I create this podcast, mm-hmm. when I create Nerd School, when I create the Gruff and Loud show, when I write comedy jokes for stand-up shows that I do. And I don't. A lot of times I don't. I just don't do it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm going to do. So okay. you can do whatever you want to do. You guys don't have to do that. But if you tweet about it or uh, Instagram about it, I don't know what the verb for Instagram is, and use the hashtag 14 Days of Magic, or for, for every 10,000 views... They get they donate ten dollars towards 
reforestation of the Amazon rainforest. So this contest literally saves the rainforest. Each 1 million views brings $1,000 donated. And specifically what they're doing is uh, it's the reforestation of one of the Brazilian sectors of the rainforest called Fazendo Sao Nicolau. And so converting all that into cash is going to help their project, Magic Mind's partner, Pachama, who's doing this. Okay. So do that. Just just get on social media and talk about what you're doing for 14 days to be a better person. And then also use our code ATL14 to buy Magic Mind. Do those two things together, and then you can win more things. But the real winner here is the Amazon Rainforest. There you go. So I hope that's right. It's okay. a little unclear. Yeah. Uh, but hopefully that's correct. But again... I do it. I take Magic Mind because there are adaptogens in it, and that comes from the word adapt. They naturally adapt to what your body needs, and it helps uh, relieve stress. That's wonderful. That's one of the things. Um, there's a bunch of things, and I've talked about them a lot. Um, Ad nauseum is I what I would say. I but... know. I do talk about it a lot, but it helps me drink yeah, less that's coffee. Right. That's I true. focus when I drink it, and I drink less coffee. I used to have to drink a bunch of coffee, and that wasn't good for my heart or making me jittery. And now I don't have that issue anymore. So, boom, in everyone's face. Um, I love the magic mind. So I, I love the magic I mind. I love the magic mind. It is very good for you. Drink it and get a subscription cheap uh, using our hashtag. Uh, but now we're going to jump into yes, please. September and October of 1956 56. here on American Timelines. And I'm drinking a beer, and Amy's high as a damn kite. Uh, so <laughs> let's uh, go jump right in. She's high on sniffing glue. It's all legal. It's, it's all legal stuff you're smoking, it, right? It's called hopped up on goofballs. Oh, hopped up. Amy's hopped up on goofballs, and I'm drinking a hazy Viking, and the jury's out on whether I like this or not. So we'll see. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to start on Monday, September 3rd. Are you ready for this? Sure. Well, strap in because it's not a fun start to oh, boy. September of 1956. <clears throat> because tanks were dis- were deployed uh, at a school uh, because of a racist demonstration in mm. Clinton, Tennessee. They had to deploy tanks Jesus. to these fucking assholes. So I, I got a lot of this next story from blackpast.org, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. tnmuseum.org, life magazine, historymatters.gmu.edu, uh, and the Tennessee Tribute. So those are all yeah. places. All this happened in ten- Clinton, Tennessee. The Clinton. This is known as the Clinton desegregation crisis of 1956 at Clinton High School in Clinton, Tennessee. Black citizens began fighting for their children's rights to a better education. The earliest changes began in Clinton, Tennessee. The McSwain family sued the all-white Clinton High School because their daughter Alva could not attend because she was black. In January of 56, U.S. District Court Judge Robert L. Taylor ordered Clinton High School to desegregate during the 56-57 school year as a result of Brown. Before the decision, Clinton bussed their black students 20 miles away uh, to a segregated all-black high school in mm-hmm. Knoxville. So they had a school right next to them, yeah. but they had to go. Because, right. You know, these are kind of the nitty-gritty of the things people don't talk about. Now that integration was coming to Clinton... They had to follow the law. And since Clinton High School would be the first integrated state-run public school in Tennessee, the news went wild when it happened. Subsequently, 12 African-American students, later later known as the Clinton 12, Mm -hmm. registered to to attend the all-white Clinton High School on August 20th, 1956. 
1956, but here we're in September when school starts. Yeah. And the Clinton 12 were Alfred Williams, Alva J. McSwain, Anna Thoresser Caswell, Bobby Kane, Gail Ann Epps, Maurice Souls, Minnie Ann Dickey, Regina Turner, Robert Thacker, Ronald Gordon Hayden, William Latham, and Joe Ann Allen. Uh, and they didn't know what to expect. It made them very nervous, and the white community, of course, did not support them. So Bobby Kane, I just looked up some of them. Bobby Kane didn't want to go. Yeah, I bet Uh, not. And some of them them had no choice. These poor kids, like, think about it. They were, some of these kids were forced to be civil rights icons. Right, and And, against their will, probably. Not everybody wanted to. No. Some people just want to. Lay back and not, you know, I don't want to do this. Yeah. I'm scared and haven't. Uh. So, but by a quirk of history, the federal court ruling that made it possible for Bobby to go to Clinton made it impossible for him to go back to his other high school, Austin High in Knoxville, mm. uh, because he'd be breaking the law. So Anderson County would now no longer pay Bobby's tuition at Austin, uh, nor the cost of transporting him to Knoxville. So that's Ooh. part of the, because of the mm-hmm. law. He had no choice. He had to go to this school. Poor kid. Which is right down the hill. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, it's good that he did because yes. he's a trailblazer, yes. but the poor kid to force somebody oh to have God, to I know. fight like this. To be a, like, and all those yeah. asshole white people screaming <sighs> in his face. So awful white segregationists across the South vowed to block the school's desegregation. And soon some of the most adamant arrived in Clinton to stage protest rallies. So all of these white assholes from all over yeah. the country. Yeah. Come here to Tennessee mm-hmm. to to argue and scream and yell about a school they've never heard of. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the segregationists, John Casper, came to town from New Jersey. He was the executive secretary of the Seaboard White Citizens Council. He, he called for a mass protest meeting just before Clinton High School opened. So this big fucking tall, goofy piece of shit asshole. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, on August 26, 1956, the Clinton 12 made history as the first African-Americans to integrate a previously all-white school in the state of Tennessee. And the, f- the first day of desegregation saw no incidents. Mm-hmm. But on the second day, the 12 faced threats of violence from fellow students and a crowd of adults led by Casper. At least one teacher note- noted that the students who were threatening violence were also troublemakers at school and out of school. So mm-hmm. it was like, it was all the bad kids were the ones, who, you know, yeah. being mean to these kids. And Bobby Kane... Mm-hmm mentioned that most students were not unfriendly to him. Oh, good. Um, but he did say if a white student talked to him too long, the other students would beat the white kids oh. for talking to him. Um, yeah. He was invited to be on the basketball team, but he said the other teams refused to play if a black person was on the team. So he didn't want to do that. Yeah. The teachers were nice, though, he said, and he recalled that, quote, my teachers never showed me animosity, but the other students have to speak for themselves, unquote. Mm. And so in response to all the threats, on August 29th, 1956, Judge Taylor issued a restraining order on Casper. Casper ignored the order when he addressed a crowd of 1,500 people outside the school the same day. Judge Taylor then ordered U.S. Marshals to arrest him. Good. Casper spent a year in jail for contempt of court. Good. And while while Casper was in jail, another white citizens council leader from Birmingham, Alabama, Asa Carter, came to Clinton to... Uh, continue to lead the protest. That, this guy's a big fucking asshole, too. Yeah, and so, I think I've heard his, his yeah, name before. Yeah, we've heard of his name before, and so I kind of looked him up to say, do I know this guy? Yeah. And I fell down a rabbit hole with him just to see, like, wh- what happened to any of these people who were 
Yeah. Did they ever come Finding, to anything ever happen to him or did anything? Yeah. And so all I found about him is he died in the seventies after a heart attack, allegedly caused by a fist fight with his son. Oh. Uh, so Jesus. It sounds like a couple of pieces yeah. of shit. Yeah. So good. Good that he's dead. Mm-hmm. Anyway, on Labor Day weekend, September first and second, nineteen fifty six, white people rioted uh, because mm-hmm. they were just it was just boiling over. Mm-hmm. And they were overturning cars and smashing windows. Oh my god! All just because black people wanted education. Segregation. Segregationists also threatened to blow up the mayor's house, the local newspaper, and the Anderson County courthouse. Tennessee Governor Frank Clement sent 600 Tennessee National Guardsmen and 100 Highway Patrolmen to the city to restore mm. order. Although the violence ended, white segregationists continued to use intimidation tactics, including burning crosses on the lawns of civic leaders and high school teachers. Gunfire riddled the homes of two of the Clinton 12, and dynamite was thrown at houses and businesses in the town's African-American neighborhood. Oh, my God. Clinton High School principal David Britton also received bomb threats, forcing him to send his family out of town for their safety. Fearing for their safety, the parents of the Clinton 12 removed their children from the school. Uh, On December 4th, 1956, uh, Reverend Paul Turner, a white Baptist minister, and two black men, Sidney Davis and Leo Burnett, Escorted the Clinton Twelve back to Clinton High School, so they stopped going in September. Yeah, and they, they didn't go back till December. Yeah. Afterwards, a white mob attacked and severely beat oh. Turner, who who was the Baptist minister. Oh my God! And although Clinton High School was briefly closed until December tenth, in response to the attack on Turner, the African American students remained at the school. On May seventeenth, nineteen fifty seven, the third anniversary of the Brown decision, just four months before the Little Rock school desegregation crisis began, Clinton High School senior Bobby Kane graduated. Aww. He became the first African American to graduate from a Southern school desegregated by court order. So Bobby Kane told his parents the night of graduation that they needed to hurry up and meet him uh, as he turns in his cap and gown after the ceremony because he yeah. knew he'd be jumped. Yeah, um, the principal had a few students. Pre- protecting him during this during the ceremony but afterwards he was on his own oh my God. but his parents were too slow bobby kane was again fighting as the white students turned off the lights in an ambush and bobby had to fight for his life Jesus. so he just started swinging and fighting until his parents and others could arrive and circle him so he could safely turn in his cap and gown and go oh home. my god he went home grabbed the shotgun Animals, and was those right, people. yeah they're fuck i mean just, these are the things that people don't even talk about they right. just talk about how hard it is but the like the real i had a dig for some of this but there was interviews with bobby talking about it yeah i bet he went home and grabbed the shotgun was ready to shoot and to kill if anything came his way a year later gail ann epps became the first black woman to graduate from clinton high Mm -hmm. racial tensions continued however on october 5th 1958 a bomb destroyed much of clinton high school the school was rebuilt following a fundraiser fundraising campaign led by evangelist billy graham nationally syndicated columnist drew pearson and local citizens no no incidents were reported after the school was rebuilt uh but clinton high school became Did, the first I, so major... nobody ever probably got arrested for that i don't know bombing. i didn't really look into that but yeah. clinton high school become the first major victory in the decades-long campaign to desegregate schools across the u.s mm. so clinton high school was a big one in the whole yeah thing that i I'd never heard of that one. Yeah, you know, no. I've never heard of Bobby Kane, but this is, these are all things that, right? Again, they don't want us talking about. They don't want you talking about because they don't want to. I mean, but it's just like <sighs> bombing the whole entire school. Yeah, it's a little because excessive. it's inclusive. <laughs> I mean, it's like <laughs> killing the girlfriend because if I can't have her, nobody can. Yeah, you know? it's know. like nobody it's, can go to that it's school. It's crazy. Like, what's the? What's the? 
What did he get out of it? Like, well, it's the public pool dilemma. Yeah. Just the hate. You just know? the hate. Is if I so... have to share this with black people, I'd rather just not anybody have it. They're just so demonized in their brains that it's just awful. I mean, I think it's just important to acknowledge it, right? And keep in mind what we've come from and where we don't want to go back to. Anyway. Yes. And so we're going to do a little more uplifting, and we're going to jump to September fifth. Uh, on Wednesday, mm-hmm. 1956, when 20 people die in a train crash. Oh, my God. <laughs> is that uplifting? In Springer, New Mexico. Uh, I found an article from the Desert Sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, 20 people were killed and seven were injured in a New Mexico train wreck when the chief runs head on into a mail train. Chief was a tra- name of a train. Oh, my God. All killed were believed to be employees of the Santa Fe Railroad. And this article by William B. Dickinson uh, said that the Santa Fe streamline, steam, streamlined passenger train, the Chief, mm-hmm. veered from the main line onto onto a siding and ran head-on into a stopped mail train, killing an estimated 20 people. Um, uh, J.K. Hastings, Santa Fe train master at Las Vegas, New Mexico, said a switch was thrown in error by railroad personnel. Wait a minute. J.K. Hastings, Santa Fe train master at Las Vegas. I don't think Las Vegas is in New Mexico, is it? Unless there's a Vegas, New Mexico. Anyway, he said a switch was thrown in error by a railroad personnel, shunting the speeding chief into the siding where the eastbound mail express was waiting for it to pass. The impact broke both these locomotives into pieces and telescoped three of the first sleeper and Pullman cars into masses of shiny metal. Apparently, all the dead were employees of the railroad, four of them operating personnel, 16 of them stewards and similar workers who were in one car asleep. Man, it'd be a way to wake up. Yeah, it'd be awful, right? Mm -hmm. And then on Friday, September 7th, uh, uh, 1956, Mrs. Louise Gordon attempted to register her children for classes at Clay Consolidated School in Webster County, Kentucky, Mm -hmm. and was turned away by a crowd of 100 or more racist, awful protesters. Mm -hmm. And then on Saturday, September 8th, Harry Belafonte's album Calypso goes number one and stays number one for 31 weeks. Do you know what the big hit song on Calypso is? Deo, Daylight come and me won't go Largely, that song largely contributed to the success of the album and has long been Belafonte's signature song. Yep. The single reaching number five on the Billboard's pop chart. But did you know mm-hmm. that Starro was the sixth track on the album and the B-side of the Deo single? And it's essentially just a short reprise of Deo with slightly different lyrics. Did you know that? No. Starro. Starro. No. <laughs> I didn't know that either. Anyway, but Deo is sung from the point of view of dock workers working the night shift, loading bananas onto ships. That's right. Daylight has come, the shift is over, and they want their work to be counted mm-hmm. so they can return to their homes. Um, tally, tally me banana. Daylight come and want to go. And the very next day that that uh, album goes to number one, Elvis Presley appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show for oh. the first time. So as a young, he was a youngster. Still. He was a young guy, but uh, and so I looked this up a little bit, and, and Ed Sullivan and Colonel Parker agreed to have Elvis appear three times for the then mind-boggling sum of fifty thousand dollars. 
And the colonel probably kept most of it. Yeah. That was the highest amount ever paid to a performer to appear on TV. Wow. Ironically, before Elvis had appeared nationally on television at all, Sullivan had turned down the opportunity to book Elvis on a show for 5000 Oh, my goodness. He passed on the opportunity because he wasn't sure that Presley would be a good fit for his show's family audience. Mm-hmm. But after getting trounced in the ratings by Steve Allen, Ed had to concede, and he paid dearly. It would be a show business marriage made in ratings heaven, though. Oh, I bet. Unfortunately, a month before Ed, uh, Elvis's Ed Sullivan debut, Ed Sullivan was involved in a nearly fatal automobile accident that left him hospitalized for weeks. Oh. So by the time September 9th, 1956 rolled around, mm-hmm. Ed was still recovering from his injuries and was unable to host Presley's historic appearance. British actor Charles Lawton hosted the show from Ed's New York studio and introduced Elvis to the television audience. And he says, and now away to Hollywood to meet Elvis Presley. And 60 million viewers were transported to CBS Television City in L.A. for Elvis Presley's performance of Don't Be Cruel and Love Me Tender, the latter being the title song of his first Hollywood feature film. This is all on YouTube, dude. You can watch it. Oh, yeah. Um, so and then later he, he performed a hit from Little Richard, Ready Teddy. Mm-hmm. After that, he thanked Mr. Sullivan for the opportunity and wished him a speedy recovery. And then he introduced his next number and said, as a great philosopher once said, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. And then he went into it, and he held nothing back, snarling and gyrating and stirring up controversy all over again. Oh, boy. And many people still believe and insist that the cameras only showed him from the waist up, but mm-hmm. that's not true. They, oh. The TV audience had a full view of Elvis Presley gyrating and all that that evening. <laughs> uh, but it's crazy to watch that like, and just see yeah. how historic that is and crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on Monday, September 10th, Mrs. Gordon, who we talked about before, who tried to get her kids into that school in Kentucky. Yes. She attempted to register her children for school again, and this time her car was surrounded and rocked by the crowd oh my God. that included Mayor Herman Z. Clark. Oh, my God. The mayor? The mayor was in on it. Jesus. And then on Wednesday, September 12th, uh, James and Louise Gordon's children, mm-hmm. James and Teresa began attending the previously all-white elementary school in Clay, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Clay Elementary School. The children were escorted to school by the National Guard, and there were hundreds of guardsmen patrolling the school grounds during the day. On the second day of classes, the Gordon children and one white child were the only students in the school because all the other ones were uh, walking out in protest. Mm-hmm. So one white kid stayed. Oh, my gosh. More than half the teachers did not report to work, and Minville L. Clark resigned. So fuck Minville L. Clark. Clark was a school teacher and he was a pastor of the General Baptist Church. And in response to the attempt at integrating the school, it was ruled by the Kentucky Attorney General, Joe M. Ferguson, that the Gordon children should be denied admittance to the school because the Webster County Board of Ed did not have an integration plan. To help keep the peace, Governor Happy Chandler had activated the Kentucky National Guard and the state police. In Clay, Kentucky, the adjutant... General of the National Guard, mm-hmm. Major General J.J.B. J. J. Williams was ignoring the news of the Attorney General's decision until he heard from the governor of Kentucky. Uh, he planned to continue to take Mrs. Gordon and her children to and from school. Uh, I got all this from the notable Kentucky African-Americans database. Okay. Uh, 
In between all this, on Friday, September 14th, IBM introduces the Ramac 305, the first commercial computer with a hard drive that uses magnetic disk storage, and it weighs over a ton. Oh, my God. That's where we are with computers at this time. A ton. It's backwards time. And on Tuesday, September 18th, 1956, based on the Kentucky Attorney General's ruling, Kentucky Attorney General, did I say that right? The Union and Webster County school systems voted to officially bar black oh students God. from their schools. Governor Happy Chandler withdrew the National Guard troops. Louisville NAACP lawyer James A. Crumlin Sr. filed suit against the Sturgis and Clay school systems in the federal district court. Gordon et al. v. Collins et al. and Garnett et al. v. Oakley et al. The cases were represented by Crumlin and J. Earl Deering. In 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled Brown v. Board of Education and segregation was unconstitutional. In December of 1956, the Sturgis and Clay School Systems were directed by U.S. District Judge Henry L. Brooks to submit their desegregation plans by February of 1957. Mm -hmm. Both school systems complied, and in September of 57, a whole year from now, uh, African-American students were admitted to the schools. So it took a whole year for them to come up with that. Jeez. It was difficult. Mm-hmm. On Thursday of that week, we have our first birthday. Oh, Here we go. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. American actor known for Pineapple Express and Office Space was born in Park Ridge, Illinois. Who was in both? Raised in nearly nearby Rolling Meadows, his father Robert was a municipal finance director. His mother Margaret, or Peggy, was a school administrative assistant. I was wondering how you get Peggy from Margaret. Yeah. While attending Rolling Meadows High School, team colors purple, white, and gold, home of the Mustangs. Um, Pineapple Express, was that Seth Rogen and... James Franco or something? This guy's last name is Cole. He made his acting debut oh, as Oh, Gary Cole. Gary Cole. Yeah, it is. Acting debut as Snoopy in a high school production of Clark Gessner's Peanuts musical, Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. Um, and at that school, yeah. notable alumni include Jimmy Garoppolo for mm-hmm. the 49ers and Sebastian Maniscalco, an American stand-up comedian. They went to the same school as Gary Cole. And right. everybody knows that. Now everybody's better for knowing that. But did you know that Gary Cole attended Illinois State University where he studied theater and was classmates with Lori Metcalf and John Malkovich? Yeah, and there's somebody we know that... That knows Gary Cole? Yeah. Who was it? Who was it? From Indiana U? Does that person also know John Malkovich and Lori Metcalf? No, but they... It was like they were roommates with him or something. I can't remember who it was now. Oh, my gosh. We might know Gary Cole's roommate. So when you think of it, just blurt it out. I will. We're almost October. Where are you going to take over? On Friday, uh, September 21st, 1956, due to a combination of air friction and steepened dive path, an F-11 Tiger shot itself down with its own gunfire. Oh, my God. (laughs) Whoopsie. Yeah. Young U.S. Navy test pilot Tom Attridge took off in his Tiger. From Long Island, New York, for a weapons test over the Atlantic. That's what they call an F-11 Tiger. Yeah. He climbed to 20,000 feet, started a Mach 1 dive, and fired two bursts of rounds from his 20mm cannons until Mm -hmm. the ammunition was expended at 
13,000 feet. He continued his dive, and around 7,000 feet, something powerful struck his windshield. Thinking it must have been a bird, he quickly realized he had a big problem on his hands, and his plane was losing power. Well, what was in the windshield? His his own bullets. Pulling up, he throttled back to 230 miles per hour and began a return to base. Unable to maintain altitude, he attempted to apply more power, but the power would not exceed 78%. The plane went down into a sea of trees, approximately a mile shy of the runway, Hmm. traveling 300 feet and catching fire. It was a total loss. After he suffered a broken leg and several broken vertebrae, but thankfully survived. As he later learned, it was not a bird that took him down. It's turned out the crash was caused by a far more surprising source, his own rounds. Oh, my God. How do you? So there's whole this whole big thing about bullet speed versus supersonic speed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can really go into it. No, now, I don't think. I don't think it'll, no. it'll make sense. But you could look this up. Um, and, yeah, so... That's crazy. Um, These days, aircraft weapons systems are primarily missile-based, so Mm -hmm. not just bullet-based. So I think they're guided differently, and I don't think this will happen anymore. But Attridge will always be known as the pilot who shot himself down. Uh, Oh, my goodness. But, yeah, I I don't think anybody knew that that was possible until they realized they were were now going faster than bullets can go. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's so pretty crazy. funny, right? This is so crazy. And then September 28, 1956, the Johnny Carson TV show last airs on CBS TV. It was a variety show mm-hmm. he used to have. And then on September 30th, 1956, yeah. while intoxicated, Thomas Fitzpatrick, a resident of Emerson, New Jersey, stole a single-engine plane from the Tetterboro School of Aeronautics oh my gosh. at Tetterboro Airport in New Jersey at approximately 3 a.m. Oh, boy. Uh and he flew without lights or radio before landing on St. Nicholas Avenue near 191st Street in front of a New York City bar, where earlier he, <laughs> he had been drinking, and he what? made he made an intoxicated barroom bet that he could travel from New Jersey to New York City <laughs> in 15 minutes. And he did it? Yep, and he stole a plane and did it. The New York Times called the flight a feat of aeronautics and a fine landing. For his illegal flight, he was fined $100. Oh, that's not too bad. After the plane's owner refused to press charges. Oh. So not really any harm, no foul. No harm, no foul. That brings us to October of uh, 1956. Okay. Where Amy, the beautiful, <clears throat> lovely, and talented Amy, is going to share yes. an awful, awful true crime story for all you people that love awful, awful Horrible true crime. Right. I'm going to tell the story of Dr. John Bodkin Adams. John Bodkin Adams. So and not John Adams, the old former president. This is an Irish timeline. Kind o- of. Irish? Oir- it's an Irish timeline. I- so um, I got my information. I based my research off of an article by Claren Conliffe. From headstuff.org. Headstuff. That's And like Wikipedia cool... and Murderpedia. All right. All right. Yeah. So I'm going to quote the top of this article that says For the profession of doctor to work in society, people need to trust them. Most honor, the, most honor that trust, but a few abuse it, some in horrific ways. One such scoundrel was John Bodkin Adams. Quite how deep his violation of that trust went is something that time and botched investigations have left us unable to know. So he was a doctor. Yes, but it's certain that he was one of the greatest scoundrels to ever bear the title of general practitioner. Wow, one of the greatest scoundrel practitioners of all time. Yeah, we're gonna talk. That's about. right. 
So he was born in Randallstown, Northern Ireland, 1899. Okay, Randallstown. Um, so his father was a watchmaker and was also a preacher in the Christian Brethren, which was a Protestant group. Uh, a watchmaking preacher. He was named for his mother Ellen's brother John Bodkin, who was well known in Brethren circles for his successful missionary work in China. John had a younger brother named William, and there was also a young a young girl in the family. Her name was Sarah Henry, and she was John's cousin. And uh. she had been taken in by his mother after his her own parents had died. So mm. John was a student at a boarding school in Coleraine when his father died in 1914 of a stroke. Okay. Then in 1916, he went to study medicine at Queen's University in Belfast, and oh. it was while he was there that his family suffered another tragedy. His young brother, William, died of the Spanish flu, and John also had fallen ill during those years at college okay. um, and missed a whole year of studies, but it might have been a stress-related deal. He graduated a year behind schedule in 1921 without honors, it says. Okay. Um, I, his grades weren't that great, I guess. And um, a pass was a pass, and John was now a qualified doctor. So even though he barely passed. So it doesn't matter if you barely pass. Yes. You still, yikes. Can you imagine if you could see your doctor's grades before know, you see right? a doctor? Yeah. Because I don't want to go. Nobody wants to go to those ones that barely passed. So he didn't make many friends at school. Most people described him as socially awkward. Okay. In his last year, though, in 1920, he attended a missionary conference, and he met this lecturer named Arthur Rendell Short, who was a surgeon from Bristol. Okay. And so they talked about the lecture and about John's famous uncle, John Bodkin. Okay. When Arthur heard that John was a medical student, he offered him a job in Bristol after he graduated. That sounds very nice. So then John took him up on that after he graduated. So... But he he didn't do well um, in the academic medicine f field. So okay. after six months, Arthur said, here, you know, here's an advertisement. Why don't you go elsewhere? Go or, do something else? Yes. So he gave him an advertisement, advertisement. for, some, and for it was, some other thing that's not yeah, a doctor job? Well, it was, for a it was from a Christian weekly, and it was looking for a religiously inclined man to join a group of general practitioners in Eastbourne, Sussex. Okay. So he applied for the job, and he got that job. Okay. Eastbourne was a prosperous and pleasant town in 1922, and okay. John soon brought his mother and cousin over to set up a household. Okay. So throughout his university career, <clears throat> he had he he wasn't a, the most talented doctor, but or he, smart as you could tell. Like but he was a really hard worker. Okay. He had a he had a lot of hustle, so he's he like did a, have a good Charlie Hustle. hustle. He was a Charlie. Like. That's right. He's a Charlie Hustle. Charlie Hustle, and he made a lot of house calls, so that in the town they he started to get a reputation. Oh, that guy will come any time of day or night. Yeah, he's not very. He's bright. putting his bells not, on right now. He's not a good doctor, but that's he'll right. come over. He'll be there. That's right. And so, it's kind of a dip. Now but he'll Sussex, be where he lived, was home to less richer people. Less richer, like no more richer. Oh, richer people. I meant richer to say richer people, not less richer people. I didn't mean to say less. Okay. So anyway, you were just thinking about Les Nesman from WKRP in Cincinnati for a minute because he's because this guy kind of looks like I'm looking at his picture on the yeah, Google. He looks a little bit like Les Nesman, kind of a little bit like the 
the guy in the Marvel movies who uh, ends up being um, uh, what's the guy, the little German guy, the little tiny. All right, that was a great story. Hydra guy. That ends all right, up anyway, Modok. I think I don't know who he ends up being. All right, Never mind. so there was all these rich people that lived there, and because it was in the country, but it was close enough to London, so it was perfect. You know, and I Perfect bet it was for rich people. I like bet it was land. like idyllic. Rich people want a lot of land. Mm-hmm. Um, and John's reputation as a doctor, willing to be called out, like we said, any time it yeah. it helped him pick some of these rich clients. Yeah, I and mean, among hey, you them, get your clients. Among those were William and Edith Mawood, who had. Oh, they sound like they're going to be dead. They had a lot of money from William's successful Sheffield-based cutlery business. Oh. And so the doctor was oh, first called work. out to attend Edith after she broke her leg in an accident, but he soon wedged himself into the position of family friend. Mostly you know through... what? I love wedging myself into positions yeah. of family friendship. Well, it was just he was just really persistent, I guess. Yeah, it sounds like it. <clears throat> and this not only got him into the local social scene, but also allowed him to appropriate gifts from the household, including the time he admired William's coat, asked him where he got it, and then went and purchased an identical one and charged it to the Mawwoods. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Hey, where'd you get that coat? Oh, okay. Uh, Macy's. I'll put, All right. your, I'll put it on your tab. That's right. Thank you. Through the 1920s. You told me where you got it. <laughs> must be from you. You must have wanted me to. So through the 20s, his social and financial status rose, and this was reflected in 1928 when he began employing a chauffeur to drive his two fancy cars around. Huh. I'd like to, you think I can get a chauffeur to drive my Prius? Yeah, might. Cars themselves were his passion, it seemed, rather than driving them. Along okay. with this, John began to gain a slightly less savory reputation, though Uh-oh. few were willing to speak ill of him openly. Okay. In addition to presumptions like those he'd made on the Mawwoods, several patients found on a second opinion that he had scheduled them for unnecessary and expensive operations. Ah, sounds like a dentist we had once. And one woman whose eyesight was damaged in an accident, and so she wouldn't be unable to sign anything, was shocked to find that the doctor was doing his best to get control of her power of attorney. Man. But the main thing was That's the wills. Uh-oh. Part of his in- income came from bequests left in the wills of those he had attended in their final illnesses. Oh, when they die, which they, was, he rewrote their wills? Did well, no, he... Doctor shit? St- it was a standard practice of the time for people to write your doctor into your will. Oh, really? When you were dead, when you were dying. Yeah. Wow, really? Yeah. That's a thing? That was back then. Back at, mm-hmm. I don't think now. I wonder if it is still a thing. No. And the main reason, um, that was the main reason why wealthy clients were so desirable. Yeah, yeah. You want to, yeah, you only Old ass wealthy clients would be the most desirable. Yeah. Because right? yeah. they're about ready to die. Um. It, I but wonder John, if they put other people in their will, too, like their barber and their yeah. milkman. I wonder. Well, um, there Who was there was a warning sign. Is. The first warning sign was um, with Matilda Witten. She was an elderly widow in her 70s, and she moved to Eastbourne. And, of course, the doctor was often in attendance on her. He was good enough to loan her his car and chauffeur her on occasion, and she became friendly with Sarah and Ellen. In gratitude, she bought him a new car, which was an extravagant gift, but not necessarily alarming. Okay. More worrying was when she changed her will to disinherit her stepchildren and leave the bulk of her estate to Dr. Adams. Yeah, that seems a little fishy. And it was around this time that the staff at the hotel where she was living became concerned that the doctor might be over-medicating her Uh. because she seemed to lose all energy while he was visiting her. 
mm-hmm. a nurse who also attended her thought that the doctor was behaving suspiciously. So then Matilda died in May of 1935, and he inherited her fortune. And oh her children gosh. challenged the will but lost. What? So the fur around Matilda Witten's death might have saved the Agnes fur- Pike. Fuhrer? The Fuhrer. The Fuhrer. The Fuhrer. Fuhrer. The Fuhrer. The Fuhrer around it <laughs> might have saved Agnes Pike in 1939 because she was another old lady. Yeah, that he had his set of sights on. Well, her relatives started worrying enough to get to bring in a second doctor. Oh. And that made that pissed John off. Yeah, that would piss him off. You but the second doctor couldn't find anything wrong why she was being given all this morphine and barbiturates huh. and took over her treatment. And then huh. after a couple months without Dr. Adams' care, she was almost fully recovered. Ah, he was he had the Munchausen thing. It was probably incidents like this which led to the local doctors to exclude him from their arrangements after war broke out when they set up a pool to take over the patients of any doctors who were called up for active service. Yeah. They left him out out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And he was never called up, um, but he did volunteer at the local hospitals in order to make up the staffing shortages. And he became a qualified anesthesiologist, though the hospital staff told stories of him not bothering to pay attention and making mistakes during operations. Um, The most notable incident for John during the war, though, was his mother's death in 1943. Okay. And that left him with only Sarah as family. Then she was that cousin, remember? Yeah, that cousin that... He had never married, though he had briefly been engaged in the 1930s to a woman named Nora O'Hara. And that engagement had been amicably broken off. And the local rumor mill had it that he was because Nora had discovered he was gay. Oh. Um, of course, that was illegal at the time, but it's pretty sure he was gay. Yeah, but you weren't allowed to say anything. Right. About it. So after the war, he continued to receive all these legacies and Wait, his fortunes illegal? continued to grow. Yeah, it was illegal to be homosexual at the time. That's awful. So by some estimates, he was the wealthiest general practitioner in England, which to a certain type of person meant that he was obviously the best one. One of the most high profile of his clients was Edward Cavendish, the Duke of Devonshire. Speaking of homosexuals. Who had been a minister in the wartime government. Harold was in attendance by the Duke's side in 1950 when he died of a heart attack. So they might have been partners. A lot of people assume, a lot of people get British mixed with gay. A lot of people. Yeah. You. Not a lot of people. You. <laughs> Me? You. You do that. Oh, my neighbor Carl. No. He, he does that. too. Nobody does, does that. No, I just feel All like right. British is very proper and gay guys are very proper. All right. So. I love gay guys. Um, He died of a heart attack and signed the death certificate or the doctor signed the death certificate saying that he died of natural causes. But there were some later some questions about this as really? legally an inquest should have been held since the death had been a sudden one. But. John didn't notify the coroner, and he may not have wanted to get too much into the public eye at this time, as one of his elderly patients named Edith Morrill had died less than two weeks earlier. So he's like, so we're starting to think he's not only getting in their will, he's like killing these people. Because despite being a beneficiary in her will, John had claimed that he had no financial interest in her death on the death certificate. And if he had told the truth, then a postmortem would have had to be carried out. And he may well have not wanted that to happen. Yeah, because they might find some of this stuff. Now, he may not have wanted the coroner looking too closely into his recent conduct. So John's sister Sarah then died in 1952 of cancer, leaving him alone in his household. He wasn't without friends, though, and one of the closest was Roland Gwynn. Roland was. Wait, a f- didn't he still have that cousin? Or is that no? She, I just said that she she died. You said it was a sister. Oh, not. I guess cousin. 
He, they, this they said sister. Like sister okay. Yeah, he was like a sister. Um, Roland Gwynn was a former mayor of Eastbourne who had been a decorated veteran of World War One. Okay. And he and John became close friends and went on shooting holidays to Scotland and Ireland. Shooting holidays, that's hunting? Yeah. And their friendship further fueled rumors that John was homosexual, as Roland certainly was. Okay. Yeah. And was, so in he, fact, being blackmailed partners. by his butler um, over it. Roland he, was. Oh, Roland was. Yeah. Being blackmailed by his butler? Yeah, for being gay. Gosh, I, you know, you don't think about that, but I bet that happened all the time. Yeah, yeah. To gay guys. Poor gay guys. That sucks. So through Roland, John received even more high-profile clients, and he soon became considered one of the top GPs in the country. Really? The frequent deaths of his elderly patients and the sizable bequests he continued to rack up were all conveniently glossed over. Oh, my god! And then in 1956, his patient Bobby Hullett died, and things began to unravel. This is when the truth comes to light. Bobby Hullett, huh? So this Bobby's one. Her real name was Gertrude, but ever since she was a young girl, everyone had called her Bobby. Oh, Bobby's a lady. She'd lived near Eastbourne since the 1920s, but okay. it was only in 1950 that she became one of Dr. Adam's patience okay that was the year her husband vaughn died of a heart attack and bobby became sick through grief so john then prescribed sleeping pills which didn't really help and then he also sent her on a holiday in switzerland and that helped it helped that one did you need to go have a holiday in switzerland he also introduced her to a friend of his named jack hullett a widower who had been his patient for years so then jack and bobby struck up a friendship that blossomed into a relationship and then they married in 1952 she was all better but then in 1955, Jack went to visit Dr. Adams with stomach pains, and the doctor realized his friend had bowel cancer. Oh. So he sent for a surgeon from London to perform the operation, which was successful in removing the tumor, but which put a lot of stress on Jack. So then he was really ill for three months, and then Bobby Makes became you wonder, more stressed. Makes you wonder, did he really even have both? Well, I guess if somebody else did the surgery. Yeah. But then finally in March, Jack suffered two heart attacks and died. John was in attendance, though he failed to give him the sort of treatment that would be expected for a heart attack. In fact, he listed the official cause of death as cerebral hemorrhage, which was almost certainly not true, but which saved embarrassment. He also, of course, lied on the cremation form and said he did not expect to benefit from Jack's will. Even though he really did. Mm -hmm. Bobby did not take her second husband's death well and went into a serious decline. John had prescribed her a heavy dose of barbiturates. Lady, she's just lonely. And, and that affected her strongly, and many of her friends began to suspect he was supplementing this with injecting morphine. Her maid even wanted to go to the police about this, though the other staff wouldn't go along with it. Her friends became deeply worried when Bobby started talking of suicide, and uh-huh. this was how John justified the sedation he had to, had to do. Okay. Around this time, she changed her will to leave her, him her Rolls Royce, and she uh-huh. also gave him a check for 1,000 pounds as a gift. And then a few days later, Bobby went into a coma. As John was away, another doctor was called. And when John returned, he and this other doctor disagreed about the cause of the coma. Yeah. John insisted that it was a cerebral lesion rather than a barbiturate overdose against much of the evidence. Oh. When Bobby died, an inquest, something John had always managed to avoid, was inevitable. So this inquest gave a conduit for the rumors which had been this swirling around started, the doctor. Yeah, people, yeah. And the press soon began to show an interest. So they discovered the 1935 case over Matilda Witten's will. Yeah. And as a result, they soon descended on Eastbourne in packs. Yeah. An army of journalists went over the town and dug out every story they could find about Dr. John Bodkin Adams. A journalist army, see? They all talk like this, see? And they all have press things in their hats. Well, press. except for it was in London. And oh, there was a lot to accent. find out. They soon discovered that the good doctor was the beneficiary of not just dozens, but hundreds of wills over the years. 
Rumors soon began to spread that the deaths of several other local women are being investigated. And though no paper directly accused John, it was clear between the lines where they felt the guilt lay. The media focus soon led the local police to call in Scotland Yard to take over before the inquest began. Oh, Scotland Yard, jolly old. The dynamite revelation was that of the pathologist who confirmed that Bobby had indeed died of a barbiturate overdose. He also specifically called out Dr. Adams for not having suspected an overdose at once when he was the one who had prescribed the drugs for her. The evidence also looked poor for John when his treatment of Bobby was reviewed, but the judge in his summing up concluded that though the doctor had clearly been negligent, he had not crossed the line into criminal negligence. And such, he told the jury that the decision they had to make was between accidental overdose or suicide, and they chose suicide. So John was really vocal about his relief after the verdict, but now that Scotland Yard had begun looking into him, they had no intention of stopping. And so, but then they hit a snag when they found the British Medical Association had sent a letter out to all the GPs in Eastbourne reminding them that doctor-patient confidentiality extends to the patients of other doctors, which is kind of a signal not to say anything about Dr. Adams. However, they soon began to build up an array of cases going back as far as 1935, almost entirely consisting of wealthy widows who had rewritten their wills to favor Dr. Adams after they had come into his care. and yeah. Yeah. So then in uh, 1956, in October 1956, two Scotland Yard men called on Dr. Adams. They asked him about the drugs he had on the premises, and one caught him trying to hide two bottles of morphine in his pockets. When asked about Edith Morrill's death, the doctor said, easing the passing of a dying person isn't all that wicked. She wanted to die. That can't be murder. It's impossible to accuse a doctor. That, combined with lies that Dr. Adams told about the amount of morphine and barbiturates he purchased, which turned out to be massive, were enough to prompt the higher-ups at Scotland Yard to order an arrest. Every time you say, every time you say barbiturates, what? I just remember, I remember learning about barbiturates in elementary school mm-hmm. and then being like scared like that was going to be a big concern. They were like, this is a big concern. Like People are going to peer pressure you to take barbiturates. My whole life, I remember thinking, being scared, there's going to be some pushers like, hey, I got some barbiturates. All right, moving on. (laughs) There never was. So Nobody's ever offered me a barbiturate. All right, listen. All right, go ahead. So I don't even know where I'm not. You got any barbiturates? This was protested by some among the investigation because they felt some of the other cases might be sure if they were allowed to investigate further. Edith had been cremated after all, but some others could be exhumed. But those were overruled, as after all, the doctor could always be charged on these other cases later. So on December 19th, 1956, John Bodkin Adams was arrested for the murder of Edith Morrill. In the eyes of many in the media, the doctor was already guilty. Really? Yet from the start, the handling of the case was peculiar. For example, a copy of the inspector in charge of the case's report, effectively the entire case for the prosecution, was handed over to the BMA, the British Medical Association, who almost certainly passed it on to the defense. Okay. Similarly, the notebooks written by the nurses in the case of Edith Morrill were entered into police evidence, but though the defense somehow received a copy of them, the prosecution didn't know that. So by producing them into evidence while cross-examining one of the nurses, the defense managed to throw these key witnesses off balance and place doubt in their evidence. So despite the fact that the notebooks did actually confirm that Edith was receiving unusually high levels of morphine and other drugs, the defense managed to turn them to their advantage. Huh. 
So the trial then turned on the motive for the murder, and the defense was able to make headway here by pointing out that amount John received under Edith's will was paltry, especially compared to his own wealth. Okay. By this time, you know, he had so much money. Yeah, because he had been piling it up. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons the police would have rather had a different case be prosecuted, it one like, that he got more money from. It looks like Mr. Potter from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Um. So anyway, the um. they found him not guilty, though. Really? Yes. Um, but he was charged he, with forging prescriptions and lying on cremation forms. So he was fined and he was struck off the medical register. But that would only stick for five years. And after that, he applied to be reinstated and was able to resume private practice. Can you believe that? There That's was, crazy. Yeah. Doctor, and there was a great yeah. deal of suspicion at the time that there had been a finger on the scales of justice and that either the yeah, prosecutor or the judge off. or both have been influenced to direct the trial. Um, one of the I theories... Mean, when you got money, man, you can buy everything. One of the theories was that Roland Gwynn had used his influence to have the second charge dropped oh. as he'd been seen dining with the Lord Chief Justice during the trial. Yikes. But then there were other theories that the government had put pressure on the judge. The Duke of Devonshire, the patient whose death Dr. Adams had attended after Edis, had been the brother-in-law of Harold Macmillan, who had become prime minister only a few weeks before the trial. And it was alleged that the new prime minister was eager to avoid any scandal that mm. might impact him from digging into the Duke's death. Yeah. So they, that was another one that was let go. Yeah, it's corruption, man. Yeah. So Money and power. This guy looks just like Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, so he looks evil. Just Yeah, he's Mr. Looks Potter. Like a bad guy. He does look just like Mr. Potter, you're yeah. right. So anyways. See, he's sexy. Don't get me wrong. Mr. Potter was sexy. Yeah, I don't know about that. Women want to be with him. The men want to be him. <laughs> so, yeah, that's pretty much the story. That's what you got? Yep. It's what I could come up with. That's not bad. <coughs> so I'll just got a couple things in October, and we'll be done with this episode of American Time on History for Jerks. All right, let's hear it. So <clears throat> I kind of messed this up because I thought this happened October 4th, 1956, but... I see my document says 1958, but it's a follow-up to the Thomas Fitzpatrick story I told you about, the guy, the drunk uh, bar guy who went and stole a plane oh, yeah. to win a bet in a bar. Yeah. Uh, on October 4th, I guess 1958, just before 1 a.m., so this is actually two years later, Fitzpatrick again was intoxicated, so he stole another plane oh, from the God. same airfield and landed on Amsterdam 187th Street <laughs> in, in front of a Yeshiva University building after another bar patron disbelieved his first feet. He was telling the story. Oh, my God. Of, and then he's like, oh, uh, yeah? You want to see? Yeah, oh, yeah. So for his second stolen flight, Judge John A. Mullen sentenced him to six months in prison, stating, had you been properly, pro- properly jolted then, it's possible this would not have occurred a second time. Yeah. Fitzp- Fitzpatrick said, it's the lousy drink that caused him to attempt the stunt. <laughs> Local resident Jim Clark believed that Fitzpatrick's goal was to land on the field of George Washington High School, uh, which uh, is the same school that Tiny Tim and Ron Perlman went to. Uh, okay. And another resident, Sam Garcia, described how times have changed, stating if it happened today, they would call him a terrorist and lock him up and throw away the key. 
which is kind of funny to think because they would. Yeah, you can't, yeah. Go, you can't just go steal planes now. No. But yeah, so, and I knew that that's the school that Tiny Tim and Ron Perlman went to because we covered it on the Gruff and oh, Loud Show. Oh, so you're familiar with the school. I was already know that school from the Gruff and Loud Show, baby. One of All the first right. episodes of the Gruff and Loud Show, which is the greatest YouTube show in history. And then October 8th, 1956, the 1956 World Series of Major League Baseball was played between the New York Yankees of the American League and the defending champion Brooklyn Dodgers of the National League. All right. That's why everybody still loves it when the Dodgers and Yankees play. And they might play this year in the World Series, I guess people are talking. Dodgers and Yankees, Dodgers and Yankees, because they were across town and now the Dodgers are in L.A. <clears throat> anyway. Oh, that's right. On October 8th, it was Game 5 of the World Series, and New York Yankee right-hander Don Larson pitched a perfect game. Mm. Uh, that That's very rare, and only people like Brian McCartney love that. Because it's real, <laughs> it's real boring. Yeah, because uh, there's no hits. Like uh, yeah, Brian McCartney freaking loves it. That guy gets a boner. So <laughs> uh, look up Brian McCartney on Twitter. He's been on Chicago Fire and Chicago. What's the other one? Doctor Chicago, Chicago Morgue. No, what's the Doctor one? Chicago Med. Chicago. Chicago Office Park. <laughs> he's about doctors whatever that is anyway he's on both of those shows a lot he lives in chicago he's a great fellow he's beautiful and then october 10th the world series ended because the yankees won the series in seven games whoop, behind whoop. yogi berra's two home runs mm-hmm. uh they beat the dodgers nine and nothing in game seven at ebbets field the mvp was don larson i guess so the yankees captured their 17th championship Brooklyn won games one and two. New York pitchers threw five consecutive complete games, games three and seven, to cap off the comeback. Uh, and Larson, who had that perfect game, was the series MVP, like I said. And the Dodgers scored 19 runs in the first two games, but only six in the remaining five games, with just one in the final three games. This was the last World Series to date not to have scheduled days off, although, mm. although game two was postponed a day due to rain. So these these were oh, just consecutive. consecutive. Now they Yikes. have like time off. Now yeah. it's like the World Series goes through. Yeah, it's almost like Christmas by the time they're friggin' done with that Man. shit. Uh, and then October fifteenth, nineteen fifty six, William J. Brennan Jr. is appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. October f- that same day, uh, the first plane to land safely on the water happened, uh, and it was Pan Am Flight Six from San Francisco to Honolulu. All 24 passengers and seven crew survived. Oh, nice. It was a round-the-world airline flight that ditched in the Pacific Ocean and actually ditched the next day on October 16th, 1956. Can you imagine having to climb out of an airplane in the, into the, in ocean? the ocean? Yeah. On your seat, yep. basically? It's After two of its engines failed, Flight 6 left Philly on October 12th as a DC-6B and flew eastward to Europe and Asia on a multi-stop trip on the evening of October 15th, the flight left Honolulu on a Boeing 377 Stratocruiser Clipper named Sovereign of the Skies. Uh, and the accident was the basis for the 1958 film Crash Landing. Oh, man. So we, maybe we can rent that someday from uh-huh. Video Spectrum. <laughs> and then on October 17th, this is a little African-American history I want to talk about. All right. Somebody who was born. It's a birthday. All right. May Jemison was born in Decatur, Alabama. She was the first African-American woman in space. Oh. She was the youngest of three children. Her father was a maintenance supervisor for a charity organization, and her mother worked most of her career as an elementary school teacher How did in I Chicago. know you were a teacher? You knew that? 
I knew it. I knew you were going to say teacher. You knew in Chicago. Maybe we knew her when we lived there. I doubt it. You don't think we knew someone who was born in 1956's no. mother when we were there? In the no. I 2000s? doubt that. Anyway, Jemison knew from a young age that she wanted to study science and someday go to space. The television show Star Trek, and in particular, African-American actress Nichelle Nichols, portrayed by Lieutenant... Mm-hmm. Portrayal, her portrayal of Lieutenant Uhura mm-hmm. further stoked her interest in space. She graduated from Stanford University with degrees in chemical engineering as well as African-American studies. She then earned her medical degree from Cornell... She was a doctor in the Peace Corps in Liberia and Sierra, and then she applied to NASA. She wrote several books for children and appeared on television several times, including a 1993 episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Anyway, she's awesome. And then on October 17th, 1956, Mm -hmm. the game of the century happened. 13 Chess game of the century. 13-year-old Bobby Fischer defeated 1953 U.S. champion Donald Byrne in the Rosenwald Memorial Tournament at the Marshall Chess Club in New York City. So that's pretty amazing that a 13-year-old boy yeah. beat some chess champ. Uh, and then I'm go- now I'm going to go through every move in that chess game. No, we're not doing that. We're not we doing are that. not doing that. that. October 23, 1956 was the first video recording on magnetic tape that mm-hmm. was televised coast to coast. It was a two-and-a-half-minute video taped song from your hit parade star Dorothy Collins, and it was inserted into the Jonathan Winters show. NBC engineers in New York wanted to see if the viewing public could tell the difference from the live portion of the show. When no one noticed the transition, the age mm-hmm. of videotape was born. Hmm. On October 29, 1956, I'm going to end with this. NBC anchors, anchors Chet Huntley and David Brinkley team up for the first ever Huntley-Brinkley report. Oh, and then they go on to become the greatest tag team in wrestling history. No, the powers of pain did not happen. The powers of pain might be Chet Huntley and David Brinkley. Nobody really knows because they're from. Oh, really? They were they're from parts unknown. They have face paint. Oh, nobody man. knows if they're Chet Huntley or David Brinkley. Well, you might be right. I then. doubt they are. The doubt it. Of, the powers of pain. Yeah. They were managed by Mr. Fuji. Yeah. And that brings us to the end. The end of this episode of American Timelines by History for Jerks. Please don't forget your 14-day challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I've 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 instructed you exactly how to do it easily. Clearly and clearly. concisely, no sweat. Makes a lot of sense. Just do your thing and hashtag 14-day <laughs> magic. 14 what is it? You don't even know what that is. Hashtag 14 days of magic. Do your magic stuff. And don't do any magic tricks, though, because right now the hashtag is really filled with people doing magic tricks. And so they're trying to take it over with magic. Anyway, use the discount code ATL14. That's when it's great for you. Do it. All right. Anyway, I love my wife. I'm just trying to get out of here, Chuck Bailey.
Matt Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time by their music.